please be aware that True Crime by the Book may discuss topics, share opinions, and use language that could be disturbing or offensive to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings and salutations, bibliophiles. Welcome to episode 15 of True Crime by the Book. We get together here once a week to chat about books, movies, and documentaries that center on true crime. I am the librarian and your host, Tasha Pierce. This week, we finish our discussion on Kill- Killer Inside, the mind of Aaron Hernandez. If you like the episode, please share both parts with a friend, acquaintance, or, or loved one so I can blow up. I'd also appreciate ratings and reviews on your platform of choice. And I've got a couple of shout outs for the end of the episode from Apple, Facebook, and Podchaser. But right now, I think we should pick up with the downfall of Aaron Hernandez. Now, throughout the series, we hear excerpts from conversations that Aaron had with the people closest to him. Of course, being a guest of any prison comes with a total lack of privacy. The calls in and out are recorded, and we get to be a fly on the wall when Aaron spoke with his agent, his mom Terry, his cousin Tanya, and his fiancée Shayana. The calls that were featured in the series offer a little insight in the mindset of Hernandez. They also give us a glimpse of the relationships that he had with these people. Now, I spoke about Terry in the first episode. Her husband, Dennis, passed away unexpectedly after having hernia surgery. Before her 15-year-old son could even begin learning to live without his dad, she moved her new boy into the family home. Now, this would have been difficult enough, but the new boyfriend was no stranger. He was the husband of Aaron's cousin, Tanya. Now, this turn of events alienated Aaron from his mom and brought him and Tanya even closer. We hear Aaron discussing her uh, decisions and how they affected him. It was both heartbreaking and sickening to hear. He was so frustrated that he couldn't share secrets with his mom because she would tell others. He even said something to the effect of, if you were here, I'd punch you in the throat or something like that. And I just think to myself, self, could you ever imagine saying that to your mother or or my father in my case? And the answer is, if not if I enjoyed having teeth, because he would have certainly, with that threat, slapped my teeth down my throat. So it really is like, this is not something that, uh, that resonates with me that how you spoke to your mother but what also didn't resonate with me as a mother is a child not being able to tell you something without you blabbing to every goddamn body so it's obvious that he lacked a basic trust in his mom and he also prophesied that she would die without even knowing her son and he was only half right and he spoke to Shayana very often as well By this time, she had mothered a daughter with Aaron, and it seems like she was very in love with Aaron, and his imprisonment was weighing quite heavily on her. 
Uh, there were days that she had to talk when she probably would have rather been crying. She gave him solid advice and talked him out of responding to situations with anger. He also got to talk to his daughter during these calls. He made it very clear to Shayana that he was positive that he would be beating this case. She seemed to be a little more realistic about his fate, but she didn't rain on his parade. Now, all this talk about Aaron behind bars, and we still haven't discussed how he got there. That's where we are introduced to Odin Lloyd. Odin was a semi-pro football player. And semi-pro basically means that the uh, amount players are compensated would not be enough to live on. In fact, Odin's teammates said they basically paid to play. Now, these are guys that really are just playing for the love of the game. And Odin was a stellar semi-pro player. And that's one thing he had in common with Aaron, love of the game. And they would cross paths again for their other loves. Aaron's fiance Shayana and Odin's girlfriend Shania are sisters. They were close, which means Odin and Aaron became close by default. Uh, one more similarity between the guys was their love of Mary Jane. Both were smokers. Uh, Odin was known, in fact, as the blunt master for his talent at rolling marijuana cigars. The ladies would hang out while the guys would have sessions in Aaron's man cave. And we can only assume that Odin and Aaron began to share more than marijuana and they would occasionally go out together. This is how they came to be together in the early morning hours of June 17th, 2013. Aaron and two of his friends from the hood, the real hood, not the not the fake hood, the hood hood. <laughs> they went to pick Odin up at his sister's home. When he got in the car, Odin texted his sister. Did you see who I'm with? Then he followed that with NFL, just so you know. Now, right now, those texts seem ominous as fuck. <laughs> but at the moment, his sister thought he might be bragging that he was hanging out with an NFL star. And in June 2013, that's who Aaron Hernandez was, a star. Fresh off a Super Bowl appearance at the young age of 22, Aaron had proven to be one of the premier tight ends in the NFL. He was rewarded with a contract that would be worth $40 million over five years. This was beyond lucrative. It was insane. That contract alone represented 40 million reasons for Aaron to stay out of trouble, which makes it downright confounding that he didn't. Because not only did Aaron continue to go to nightclubs, which triggered his paranoia, smoke weed, which could create professional issues, and hang with the boys from the hood, he was about to commit murder. Now, no one can really know what happened in those hours or why, <laughs> but the next day, Odin was missing. He and Aaron had plans to join their girlfriends for Father's Day brunch, but Odin was a no-show. Now, later that evening, his remains were found by a jogger who then called police. Odin's body was found in a gravel pit, and the pit is located less than a mile from Aaron Hernandez's home. 
These guys had to be the biggest idiots ever. Aaron didn't live in a modest three-bedroom. He had a mansion. A mile from a house that size may as well have been in his backyard. Then the morons left evidence that included DNA in the form of a half-smoked blunt at the scene. So it wasn't hard to come to the conclusion that Aaron and his friends Carlos Ortiz and Ernest Wallace were involved in Odin's murder. On June 26, 2013, Aaron was arrested at his home. Uh, less than two hours later, the Patriots cut him. This is where I tell you about how shitty the business end of the NFL can be. We heard Aaron in one phone call talk about banned substances in the NFL. Not just marijuana, but certain painkillers that were also considered illegal drugs per the NFL standards. He spoke about how, how hypocritical the league is because every Sunday, the team doctors were injecting him full of those very same illegal drugs. Anything it takes to win, right? And also, Aaron asked to be traded because he was in fear for his and his family's lives. Belichick and Kraft said, nah, how about we set you up in an apartment where you can lay low? Fuck your family, right? You can lay low in this apartment, even though we know that you're just going to basically smoke yourself into a stupor in this apartment, isolated from your family and worried about their safety. But Anything to win, right? Of course, there's a story behind why Aaron was fear was fearful, and I'll get to it once I'm through dragging the Patriots organization. <laughs> now, I know he was under contract, but if a kid wants to be traded from a perennial playoff contender, wouldn't you want to look into why? <laughs> why? Why would he want to be traded? For Aaron... It was allegedly because he shot one of his best friends in the face and left him for dead. Imagine his shock when on Valentine's Day 2013, he received a call from Alexander Bradley, the man he had apparently tried to kill. Bradley was very much alive and pissed. I guess that's understandable when someone literally wanted you dead and shot you in the fucking face. And he wasn't going to cooperate with police either. He never intended to out Aaron as the shooter. He wanted revenge. In fact, he wanted revenge, money, or both. So, why the fuck did Aaron shoot him? His constant friend, Paranoia, required it. See, there was another case we haven't yet discussed. Oh yeah, the cases are just piling up. But in this case... On July 16th, 2012, Aaron allegedly was at the usual place that filled him with anxiety, the nightclub, when someone had the nerve, gall, and intestinal fortitude to accidentally spill a drink on him. Upon leaving the club, Aaron and Bradley saw the guys involved in this incident, and instead of asking them, hey, mind paying my dry cleaning bill, it is alleged that Aaron rolled up on them and said, what's up now, niggas, and began shooting into their car. Daniel Jorge Correa de Abreu, who was 29, and Sefiro Texiera 
Furtado, which I'm pretty sure I ruined that name, was 28. They were both hit in the hail of bullets and they both died from their injuries. The only person who could finger Aaron as the shooter was Bradley. So killing him would be the only way to eliminate the only witness. Well, he had no idea that there would be surveillance footage of his vehicle leaving the scene of the crime, but more on that a little later. So the Patriots could have and should have looked further into Aaron's request and the timing of it, and they would have easily deduced that Aaron was involved in some top-tier bullshit. They went the route of plausible deniability. I fucking hate the fact that these players are like chess pieces that the organization owns, quote unquote. And when you when you own something valuable, you don't want anyone else to get it. So they were overlooking the failed drug tests, the incompatibility with the locker room and the glaring character issues because they owned him. As long as he's useful to us, we're going to continue playing them. The entire Patriots organization has the blood of Odin Lloyd on their hands because Stevie Wonder could see that this kid was troubled. And I call him a kid. He was 23 when the shit hit the fan. Yes, he was technically an adult. Yes, he was absolutely rich beyond my wildest dreams. He was also socially immature per the Patriots own scouting report. He needed guidance. Actually, later on, we find out he needed even more than that. And it's like he found peace behind bars. He was content. Listening to the phone calls with Shyana, it was clear that she was the adult in the room. He had affection for her and their daughter, but they weren't enough for him to make better choices. And his mom was literally fussing at him about not giving her a million dollars while he was locked up. She didn't even understand that a $40 million contract does not mean that he's got $40 million today. But in, in of all the damn things to be worried about, why are you worried about that? He wasn't getting that money. The Patriots were doing everything in their power to not even pay his signing bonus. So you know they weren't going to be paying any part of this contract. Even though these bastards knew he was thugging and looked the other way, but I'm making this about New England when it's really about how fucked up Aaron Hernandez is. He strolled into court looking devastatingly handsome and just a little bit scared. Just a little. He blew kisses to his daughter. He seemed normal. And that's a scary thing, how normal he seemed. Shayana sat with Aaron's family. Her sister sat with Odin's family. Once so close... Now they were estranged because Shayana stood by her man. Also, never wavering in her support was Tanya, who by now was battling cancer. And while I thought the activities she condoned at her home played some part in Aaron's delinquency, she without a doubt loved him. Remember the other murders that Aaron was thought to have committed? I said a vehicle that looked very much like his showed up in surveillance video. He was known to drive a silver SUV that poof, vanished. Well, that vehicle 
was finally located. Via a search warrant, the police located it in the garage at Tanya's. And try as they may, prosecutors could not get her to cooperate with their investigation. She even stared down being charged with contempt without blinking. Now, the judge didn't blink either when he sentenced her to jail time, despite the fact that this woman would miss her cancer treatment if she got locked up. She did get locked up, but she ended up making bail after 196 days. I don't want to go into all her cases and such, but she was a ride or die. She did the jail time. She pled guilty rather than answer any questions. She missed precious days with her children for Aaron. She continued battling cancer until passing away in October of 2015. And do I really need to give you a blow by blow of the court proceedings in the Lloyd case? Good. I'll just say Robert Kraft's old evil two-faced ass testified. Oops. Did I really just say that? I don't even know Mr. Kraft. But I do know his organization is always in the midst of a cheating scandal. I do know that he's shaking in his boots because the Patriot, Tom Brady, is dipping his toe into free agency. And I also know that he allegedly likes a happy ending. (laughs) There was very powerful testimony from Odin Lloyd's mom as she held back tears. Shiana got up there and lied. And she is also considered a ride or die. I think she's misguided. Uh, Tanya Singleton showed the world that it was family over everything. And she had her cousins back. In the meantime, Shiana's family, her sister, was sitting on the opposite side of the courtroom, grieving the loss of her boyfriends at the hands of Shiana's boyfriend. At the end of it all, Aaron is found guilty in the death of Odin Lloyd. He was sentenced to life imprisonment. Now, he was acquitted of the murders of Furtado and De Abreu. So now his focus should have been on assisting his attorney with appeals. He and Shayana were being hopeful for their future. That is until a Kirk and Callahan radio show appearance by a reporter named Michelle McPhee. There, she and the host suggested that Aaron was a closeted homosexual. Now, while I feel it's kind of, it's kind of classless to out him on, in in the radio for being a closeted homosexual, I also don't think Michelle McPhee is a villain here. She took a, per- a person who lived their lives in a very public manner, uh, Hernandez, and she divulged something that nobody else knew. She was basically breaking a story. Well, two days after that story broke, Aaron would be found hanging in his cell, dead from an apparent suicide. He had left three letters, one to Shiana, one to his daughter, and one that is rumored to have been to his prison lover. There was also a Bible open to John 3.16, which reads, uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, for whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. 
that same verse uh, was written on his forehead as well. And I take that for two, two things. Thing number one, those were the, the Bible verses that Tim Tebow would generally have on his uh, face paint when he went and uh, played in games. And also that he felt like he had made amends with God and that he thought that he would gain uh, everlasting life. Uh, there is much speculation that he could not live with the world knowing this deep secret of his uh, bisexuality. But an evaluations of Aaron's brain after his death may shed light on all of his impulsive and violent behavior. That exam proved that at 27, Aaron had one of the worst cases of CTE ever studied, even at his young age. There was a considerable amount of damage thought to have come from sustaining head injuries while playing football. Unfortunately, the degenerative brain disease can only be diagnosed at autopsy. According to a July 2017 article published in Sports Illustrated, a study by Boston University researcher Dr. Anne McKee examined the brains of 202 deceased football players and found that 100, 110 of the 111 brains of former NFL players had chronic traumatic encephalopathy, that's CTE. The results were published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. The brains were donated by families of former NFL players who showed signs of the disease. The study was not conducted on a set of random former NFL players, and Dr. Uh, McKee notes tremendous selection bias in the, sim in the samples. It is no longer debatable whether or not there is a problem in football. There is a problem, Dr. McKee said, according to the New York Times. High school players in the study had mild cases, while college and professionals had more severe cases. CTE was found in 177 of the 202 brains. This disease can cause impaired judgment aggression, memory loss, and depression. CTE can only be diagnosed post-mortem. The study examined players as young as 23 years old and as old as 89. The brains were also from all player positions, including 44 linemen, 10 linebackers, 17 defensive backs, and 7 quarterbacks. Former NFL Hall of Famer Ken Stabler was among the brains after he asked that he be examined when he was battling colon cancer. McKee determined that Stabler had a moderately severe case of CTE. The family of the only NFL player without CTE did not authorize for Dr. McKee to publicly identify him. The NFL issued the following statement to SI.com. We appreciate the work done by Dr. McKee and her colleagues for the value it adds in the ongoing quest for a better understanding of CTE. Case studies such as those compiled in this updated paper are important 
to further advance the science and progress related to head trauma. The medical and scientific communities will benefit from this publication and the NFL will continue to work with a wide range of experts to improve the health of current and former NFL athletes. As noted by the authors, there are still many unanswered questions relating to the cause, incidence, and prevalence of long-term effects of head trauma, such as CTE. The NFL is committed to supporting scientific research into CTE and advancing progress in the prevention and treatment of head injuries. In 2016, the NFL pledged $100 million in support of independent medical research and engineering advancements in neuroscience-related topics. This is in addition to the $100 million that the NFL and its partners are already spending on medical and neuroscience research. And then it says Jeff Miller, the NFL's Senior Vice President for Health and Safety, testified before the House of Representatives and was asked by Illinois Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky whether he thinks there is a link between football and degenerative brain disorders like CTE. The answer to that question is certainly yes, Miller responded. With that answer comes another question. What is the NFL prepared to do to ensure players get the help they need when and if they begin to show symptoms. Because the Florida Gators turned their backs on Aaron and sent him to the league. The league turned a blind eye, enabled, and then discarded him like trash. And he had been playing the sport since early childhood with an uber-masculine father who may have celebrated his son's toughness when he sustained damaging hits. Uh, There was a former player, and I cannot remember his name, and I really don't care to look it up right this moment, but there was a former player who made the observation that head injuries don't cause anyone to become a murderer. Now, I'm not qualified to make this assumption, but I'll make it anyway. It is proven that head injuries can result in brain damage, and that damage may increase an individual's likelihood to be impulsive and destructive. If there are murderous thoughts, they could be amplified by the damage. Does that mean that I think Aaron should have been let off the hook? Hell no. But I do believe that his repeated blows to the head should have been considered in sentencing. I also believe that other athletes with a history of severe head trauma who went on to have a cognitive decline should have been presented as examples of what type of difficulties Aaron may have faced. I believe the Patriots should have been sued in civil court for the wrongful death of Odin Lloyd based on the knowledge that Aaron had approached them about a trade due to death threats. And don't mistake me for being anti-NFL either. I absolutely love the sport. But I do realize that in the U.S., football worship has gone too far. When the sport is known to be potentially dangerous to the athletes, it is imperative to take all the preventative actions necessary to mitigate that danger. I'm not sure what that looks like because I'm not a neuroscientist and I'm definitely not uh, an owner of a NFL football team. 
But I think a good start is to rethink Pee Wee and Pop Warner football for the little kids. I also think that players should be able to understand and accept the risks when they play on any level, which means that tackle football would have to wait until the teenage years. And for professionals, organizations need to be, they need to be about the player's well-being. They need to staff professionals who can identify changes to behavior in athletes and be prepared to make a player medically unfit to play if they display the classic symptoms of severe brain damage. They also need to have the license to make those decisions, to not be being paid to look the other way by the NFL. And while they're at it, they can protect and respect a player's right to peaceful protest. But I digress. Aaron led a triple life. He was at the same time an insanely talented athlete, a sexually confused young man, and a cold-blooded murderer. He was let down in so many ways by so many people. He also destroyed many lives with his actions. His sexuality should not have been that big of a story, though he did protest too much about homosexuality and transgender women. Doesn't mean he should be outed, but it does mean when the, the person who's protesting the loudest, there's usually a reason behind it. I just wish he would have gotten help sooner because this sensational and salacious story may have never happened if he did. There, of course, was so much more to this documentary than I could cover in two half-hour episodes. So I highly recommend that you watch the Netflix series Killer Inside, The Mind of Aaron Hernandez. Also, peep the bit players. Let me know if you think that a couple of them were propping themselves up with their appearance in the series. It kind of felt 15 minutes of fame-ish, but I don't know. I just got a bad vibe. Anywho. That's my take on what happened. Now, as promised, I have a couple of shout outs for leaving five star reviews. You can get a shout out too, just by sending a favorable review on your platform of choice. I'll leave my link tree in the description so you can see all the wonderful places I can be found, including my website, tcbytb.com. Now, this week, I'm saying thanks to Melanie, Joel, and Exotori21 for putting a big smile on my face. Thank you all for being part of my audience. Now, until next week, tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend. Our numbers are growing, so don't let your friends be left out of this expanding community. And that's it. Thank you for joining me this week on True Crime by the Book. Rate, review, and share. Later, bookworms.